This is AWLS, Podcasts on Wilderness Medicine, from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Hello, and welcome back to the AWLS Podcast. My name is Matt Gunderson. I am a pediatric emergency physician at the University of New Mexico in the United States, Thanks for joining us again. Today, we are going to continue our mini-series on Hymenoptera. Hopefully, you caught our last episode about ants with a specific focus on fire ants. It was a little while ago. You may recall that the Hymenoptera order of insects includes ants, bees, and wasps. Today, we are going to talk about bees with a specific focus on the quote-unquote killer bees that you may have heard about in the news. The plan for today... We will start with some general background information about bees and talk about bumblebees and honeybees. And then I'm going to tell the tale about how killer bees came into existence. It is a lengthy story, but I think it's an interesting one. It gives us some insight into the relationships between humans and nature and science and forces us to ask some questions about how much humans should be using science to manipulate nature. If you don't care so much about that and you just want to learn about evaluation and management of bee stings, you can totally skip ahead to the last like 10 minutes of this podcast. For you hardcore people, buckle up because we have a long ride ahead of us. I do want to start with a brief review of Hymenoptera in case you missed the last episode or don't remember much of it. Hymenoptera is an order of insects and thus all have the standard three body segments, head, thorax, and abdomen. They also have antennae, compound eyes, chewing mouth parts, and two sets of wings. And female bees, like female ants and wasps, have an ovipositor for laying eggs that can also be used as a stinger. All species develop through a process called complete metamorphosis, which includes the egg, larva, and pupa stages before reaching adulthood. Bees, like ants, are social insects that live in colonies. There is usually only one queen per colony. The queen is the only sexually developed female in the colony, and she serves two major functions. First, reproduction mating with male bees from other colonies and then laying up to 1,500 eggs per day during her peak production period. Second, the queen produces a pheromone called queen substance that seems to control the activities of all the other bees in the colony and gives the colony its unique identity. Worker bees are all female, but much smaller than the queen. They are the majority of bees in any given colony, and they perform all the activities of the colony, including feeding the queen and caring for the brood of the colony, which includes all of the eggs, larvae, and pupae who cannot feed themselves. Workers build and clean and maintain the hive, and they also travel outside the hive to forage for food for the colony. They do have stingers, like the queen. In fact, whenever humans get stung, it is likely worker bees that are doing it but they do not lay eggs under normal circumstances. Male bees are called drones. They do not have stingers. Their entire purpose in life is to mate with a queen, ideally from another colony. They spend about a week inside the hive after being born, apparently eating a large amount of food but not doing any work. 
You may have had a roommate in your college dorm who lived like that. And then they fly out of the hive and mate with a queen in the sky, after which they apparently drop dead almost immediately. So life for the drones is very short, but uh, never boring. And now, before talking about the different kinds of bees, I think it's worth taking a minute to emphasize that bees and wasps are different families within the Hymenoptera order of insects. If you were anything like I was growing up, I did not know the specific differences between bees and wasps and hearing about hornets and yellow jackets. I didn't know if those were types of bees or types of wasps or are they all the same or totally different. So very briefly for people like me, bees and wasps are different families. Bees are in the Apidae family their bodies are relatively fat and fuzzy compared to wasps, and they are relatively docile compared to wasps, usually only stinging in defense when they feel threatened. In general, they are vegetarians that feed on pollen and nectar, and of course they are enormously important for human food supplies as they are major players in plant pollination. Wasps are a different story. They are in the Vespidae family, their bodies are more narrow and smooth than bees. They are aggressive and will attack and sting you many times. And then afterwards, they will laugh at your pain and suffering. They are predators who feed on other insects. Hornets and yellow jackets are types of wasps. And we will talk about them in part three of this little mini-series. But today we are only going to focus on bees. There are thousands and thousands of different species of bees. The most commonly encountered in North America are bumblebees and honeybees. There are other species, such as stingless bees, but they are less commonly encountered and also less medically relevant to humans because, you know, they don't sting. So we are going to focus on bumblebees and honeybees in this discussion. Bumblebees are mostly found in the Northern Hemisphere in Asia, Europe, and North America, although they have also been introduced in Australia and New Zealand. Their bodies are very fat and fuzzy. One paper I read described them as being, quote, cartoonishly plump, which I think is an accurate description. And you may have heard the myth, which has been in circulation for many years, that bumblebees are essentially defying the laws of physics when they are flying around. And nobody knows exactly when or where it started. If you read on the internet, there is some mention of a group of scientists sitting around at a dinner party talking about it. Various different bug scientists are credited slash blamed for starting the myth. It is somewhat understandable. I am not an aerospace engineer, but for airplanes, they talk about upward lift, essentially the force acting against the weight of the airplane to keep it in the air and prevent gravity from pulling it to the ground. And they also talk about thrust overcoming drag, which we perceive as being the forward motion of the airplane. And so looking at a bumblebee, you would think that being such a plump insect, it would have a large amount of drag relative to its forward thrust and also a large amount of weight relative to the upward lift generated by its relatively tiny wings. So at first glance, it does seem like kind of a miracle that bumblebees can fly, and there are actually lots of, like, 
inspirational quotes about bumblebees, like bumblebees don't care about what science says is impossible. They fly anyways because they want to, with the implication being, you know, don't you listen to the doubters. Just get out there and chase your impossible dreams like a bumblebee in the wind. But we have learned a lot about bumblebees over the years, and it turns out they flap their wings differently from what we thought in the past. And they move more air, and they move that air in different ways than we thought in the past. So now we know how they generate enough lift to fly, and their method is completely in accordance with the laws of physics. And I hope that doesn't ruin anybody's source of motivation, like maybe you were running an ultra marathon, you were super tired, and you were just about to quit, and then you said to yourself, no, I gotta fly like a bumblebee. And then you were inspired to achieve the impossible, and you ran like the wind and won the race. So hopefully I didn't ruin that for anyone, but here on the AWLS podcast, we believe in sharing the latest up-to-date science, and we believe in telling the truth, so... There you have it. Okay, that was kind of a long tangent. In summary, bumblebees are relatively common in North America, and they can fly, and they can sting. In fact, they can sting multiple times. But overall, they are very unaggressive towards humans, so stings are actually fairly rare. Also, bumblebee populations here in the United States are being absolutely decimated for various reasons, which means the risk of getting stung by them is continuously decreasing. But overall, it's a very bad thing because even though they do not supply honey to humans, they do have an important role as plant pollinators. So it's a big deal. Now, moving on to honeybees. Relative to bumblebees, honeybees have much larger populations and much more contact with humans. And some types of honeybees are much more aggressive against humans. So overall, the number of stings against humans is much, much, much higher for honeybees than bumblebees. It is hard to overstate the importance of honeybees to human society. Obviously, they provide us with honey, which we can all agree is delicious and wonderful. But plant pollination is even more important. And if you read anything about honeybees on the internet, you will come across these incredible facts and statistics. It is estimated that honeybees account for 80% of all plant pollination by insects. One study found that honeybees contribute $15 billion per year to the United States economy. That's billion with a B, no pun intended. And then probably the most incredible fact it is claimed that one-third of all food consumed in the United States is a result of honeybee pollination. I'm assuming that includes crops eaten directly by humans and also crops eaten by animals that are later eaten by humans and maybe plants that don't get eaten themselves but are used as fertilizer for other plants that are eaten. I don't know the details. All of these numbers are highly variable depending on the source and also very controversial depending on how you interpret the data. But everyone agrees that honeybees are very important for our food supply and thus very important to human society overall. There are many different species of honeybees. They are native to various parts of Africa, Asia, and Europe and have been transported by humans to the Americas and also Australia and New Zealand. 
for the purpose of domestic honey production. The European honeybee, also known as the Western honeybee, is the most common species of honeybee in the United States and worldwide, and is the most commonly used by humans for honey production. I am not a beekeeper, but as I understand it, European honeybees are somewhat unique among honeybees in terms of their temperament and work ethic, and also their communication and reproduction, and just in general the way their colonies function, makes them particularly well-suited for humans to use them for domestic honey production. And then artificial selection by beekeepers over hundreds of generations of European honeybees has produced bees that are now even less aggressive and less likely to swarm, among other characteristics that are considered desirable from a human standpoint. So at this point, you are probably wondering, where are the killer bees? Earlier, we talked about bumblebees and how chill they are. They are obviously not the killer bees. And now we are talking about European honeybees being less aggressive and less likely to swarm, although they will sting a human if they feel threatened. This seems like reasonable bee behavior, not killer bee behavior. So who are the killer bees? What are the killer bees? Where are the killer bees? Well, let me tell you a story. We know that... European honeybees were brought to the Americas by humans back in the 1600s, specifically for the purpose of honey production. And like we just talked about, they are very good at producing and storing large volumes of honey. And they are relatively calm bees, less likely to swarm and sting beekeepers. And importantly, they are uniquely adapted to survive cold temperatures that happened every winter in Europe and North America. Apparently, it is a combination of storing lots of food and then slowing down the activity of the colony. So they are essentially able to go into a semi-hibernation state and survive during winter months in places where there are not any plants blooming or flowering or anything like that. But it was eventually discovered that European honeybees are not very good at making honey in tropical conditions. It seems that the combination of heat and humidity makes them very sluggish. And so in the 1950s, a Brazilian scientist came up with a plan to improve honey production in tropical climates. And what he did is he designed some experiments to crossbreed European honeybees, which they already had in Brazil, with African honeybees, which, as you might guess, are much better adapted to living in tropical conditions. And what they were hoping to get was a combination of all the good characteristics of each species, producing and storing large volumes of honey like the European honeybees are capable of doing, while still being less aggressive towards humans, but hopefully more active and vigorous in tropical conditions like African honeybees. And these experiments were partially successful. The Brazilian research team was able to import a few dozen African honeybee queens, which crossbred with male European honeybees, drones, and the crossbreeding did produce honeybees that ultimately produced more honey in tropical conditions. So another victory for mankind, right? Yes, yeah, science. Except there were a couple of problems. Number one, while the bees were more vigorous in making honey, they were also more vigorous in attacking pretty much every living thing around them. And this was a known risk, 
African honeybees were known to be extremely aggressive in defending their hives, while European honeybees had been domesticated and had gone through generations of artificial selection by human beekeepers to specifically be less aggressive, African honeybees had not been domesticated and in fact had gone through natural selection in their native environment in Africa to be increasingly more aggressive. And that is because there are predators in Africa that attack and destroy hives and eat the honey and the honeybee larvae. Perhaps you remember the great honey badger craze of 2011. There was that YouTube video that went viral and had like over 100 million views, and it showed a honey badger attacking beehives and killing cobras, and the narrator kept shouting, Honey badger don't care. Well, if you watch that video, then you understand why African honeybees are so aggressive at defending their hives. It's because they have to be. So thank you, honey badger. And, and little did you know when you watched that video back in 2011 that it would be preparing you for this exact moment in this exact podcast over a decade later. It turns out you were learning some useful context about African honeybees. Hashtag the more you know. So that was problem number one. We didn't originally have killer bees in the Western Hemisphere, but then we created some. And then problem number one became even more problematic when problem number two happened. Our new scientific creation escaped human control. And stop me if you've heard this story before. Like, didn't Mary Shelley try to warn us about this when she wrote Frankenstein over 200 years ago? And haven't we had thousands of cautionary tales since then, like the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park? The standard plot, scientist uses new technology to create life or restore life or create a new species, playing God somehow, and then it all goes horribly wrong and people are getting killed all over the place. In this case... There are various different versions of the story, but basically this research team in Brazil had something like 20 or 25 or 26 colonies of these bees enclosed with specially designed screens that prevented the queens from leaving their hives. So worker bees need to be able to enter and exit the hive freely to forage for food and resources, otherwise the colony can't survive, but this is totally fine. Because for the most part, worker bees don't mate and don't reproduce. So as long as you keep the queen in the hive, which prevents her from mating with drones, you, in theory, have complete control over the population. So they placed screens that have openings that are just big enough to allow workers to pass through, but not the queen, the queen being much larger than the worker bees in any given colony. And that seemed to work fine, as long as nobody, you know, removed the screens. But on one day in 1957, the screens were removed. And this is where we get several different versions of the story. One theory claims that the head scientist himself removed the screens for who knows what reason. 
Another version of the story says that an assistant became angry and deliberately removed the screens to sabotage the project. But the most frequently repeated version of the story is that a local beekeeper was visiting the enclosure and for some reason decided to remove the screens himself, possibly because he, or she, I guess, thought that the screens were hindering the movement of the worker bees. Whatever the reason, the screens were removed, and some number of African honeybee queens escaped into the wild and were now free to mate with whoever they wanted to. And there was also some concern about the escape of hybrid drones. These are male bees that are offspring of the crossbreeding. And that would be a problem because they can go mate with European honeybee queens and pass on Africanized honeybee genetics that way, in addition to the African queens going out and mating. And so we humans had now lost control of the Africanized honeybee population, and the scientists knew right away that it could be a big problem. But there was some hope that Mother Nature might clean up the mess for us. The thought was, well, the escaped bees are still a relatively small number compared to all of the European honeybees in the, you know, entire Western Hemisphere. So even if there is some mating, hopefully the Africanized genes will be drowned out and eventually fade away within a few generations. But unfortunately, it did not work out that way. The genes of the Africanized honeybees are apparently profoundly dominant over the genes of the European honeybees. So whenever they mate, the end result just produces more Africanized honeybees. And of course, we know that they are very aggressive, and they spread very rapidly, and they are very protective of whatever they perceive to be their territory. So yeah, it became a very big problem. Within the first few years, there were reports of hundreds of animals being killed by the bees in the parts of Brazil near Sao Paulo, which is where the bees escaped from. Most of the victims were dogs and chickens and pigs who died, and thus the bees became known as killer bees. And they initially spread across the country at a rate of about 100 kilometers per year, which, you know, that is about one hour of driving on a straight highway at highway speeds. It might not seem like much, but for an invasive species conquering a new continent, that is extremely fast. They reached Argentina in the late 1960s and Venezuela in the 1970s. And there was essentially nothing the Brazilian scientists or government could do to stop them or even slow them down. And I should pause here to say this happened in Brazil, but it could have happened anywhere. There have been thousands of experiments like this done all over the world. This is how science goes sometimes. We think about the risks and benefits. We try to plan ahead to mitigate the risks. But there are no guarantees in science, and there is no crystal ball to tell us exactly what is going to happen. The scientist in charge of this project is an extremely controversial figure. I actually chose not to use his name here because I didn't want this podcast to feel like a personal attack against the guy. You can look him up on the internet if you want to. He definitely received an enormous amount of blame for this disaster, and some amount of blame is clearly appropriate. But he was also a well-respected scientist for everything else that he did in his career. 
and was apparently very dedicated to preservation of nature and protection of native tribes in Brazil. And when he died, just a few years ago, actually, there were many people who mourned and talked a lot about what a wonderful person he was. There is also a lot of debate about how much blame the Brazilian government deserved. Again, there are different versions of the story. Some people say the scientists imported the bees without the knowledge of the Brazilian government. Other people say the Brazilian government specifically told him to do what he did. And now, almost 70 years later, we will probably never know the exact details for certain uh, but we do know that in disasters like this, there's usually plenty of blame to go around. So, moving along in the story, the U.S. government had been paying close attention to the spread of the bees and the damage and destruction they were causing. And in 1972, a team of scientists was sent to Brazil to assess the situation. And in the report that they published, they initially called the bees Brazilian bees, which the Brazilians did not particularly appreciate. And so there was the usual debate and social and political fallout that happens whenever we try to name things after places and then people understandably get worried about having a negative stigma attached to them. We see this frequently with viruses, right? Nobody wants a deadly virus named after their city or state or country for obvious reasons. And so they ended up being officially called Africanized honeybees, although that label also, as you might imagine, had some controversy attached to it. In the general public, as this story was mentioned more and more in the news, people mostly just called them killer bees, and they became a media sensation in the U.S. in the 1970s with books and movies being produced, particularly low-budget horror movies about killer bees, you know, destroying humanity. And after that, the buzz about the bees, see what I did there, died down a little bit, but it never really went away completely because with every new event, it would re-enter the national news cycle. So, for example, in 1982, the killer bees crossed the Panama Canal. And that was a big news item because up to that point, there had been some hope that there would be a bottleneck effect in Panama because it is famously a narrow neck of land separated by water that would maybe stop or at least slow down the spread of the bees. And that location was of particular interest to the U.S. government for two major reasons. First, the canal is obviously a high-traffic area for giant cargo ships upon which the killer bees could possibly stow away and thus be transported all over the world, which would be not good. Second the U.S. still had a significant military presence in the canal zone at that time, and that gave the Americans a chance to actually put up a fight against the killer bees. And so a commission was formed, and a program was launched to educate people about how to recognize the killer bees and how to avoid getting stung, and they talked about wearing personal protective equipment, that's right, we were talking about PPE decades before the COVID pandemic. And this commission in Panama also assembled teams to seek and destroy swarms of killer bees, especially if found on cargo ships passing through the canal. And there were some successes within the program, but ultimately the killer bees continued their invasion northward and westward through Central America. 
1986, the Killer Bees made headlines again, this time in Costa Rica with a horrifying attack that killed a graduate student from the University of Miami in the United States who was doing some biology research near a cave in a rural part of the country. He was part of a group, a research team, that accidentally disturbed a colony of killer bees, and he was stung thousands of times. A newspaper article published at that time reported that he was stung 46 times per square inch of his body, which... I don't know how they came up with that number, but it sounds like an absolute nightmare. And the article talks about how his colleagues tried to rescue him, but they were attacked and stung hundreds of times themselves and ultimately had to retreat and protect themselves. And while they were hiding and taking cover, they just had to listen to him screaming in agony until he died. So... There were terribly tragic stories making headlines in the United States and all over Latin America where where the attacks were happening. But at the same time, there was an increasing realization that the bees were not actively hunting for humans to attack, but were actually defending themselves from their point of view. And the attacks, as horrifying as they were, were actually relatively rare. And so in October of 1990, when a colony of Africanized honeybees was discovered in South Texas, thus officially confirming that they had invaded U.S. soil, it made headlines in the news, but there was no mass hysteria. In fact, a lot of news stories made a big deal about it not being a big deal. The New York Times reported that most Americans just yawned and essentially went on with their lives. So the mass media pendulum swung from overhyping and sensationalizing the bees to brushing them off as no big deal and nothing to worry about. But I would argue, especially with the media, but also life in general, that the most accurate truth is almost always somewhere in the middle. So yes, it was probably overhyped way too much. And yes, the risk to the average American is extremely low. In fact, early reports counted a total of only six deaths attributed to Africanized honeybees in the first nine to ten years after their arrival in the U.S., although there have been some more fatal attacks since then, and the trend does seem to be increasing somewhat recently. But overall, yes, the danger was definitely over-exaggerated. But at the same time, as we acknowledge that attacks by Africanized honeybees are relatively rare, and deaths from these attacks are even more rare, I think we can also acknowledge that attacks do happen, and deaths also happen, and when they do, they are terrifying nightmares that nobody should ever experience. For deaths like that, any number above zero is too many, and therefore we should do everything we can to prevent them from happening. Certainly, that includes education and preparation for first responders and healthcare providers and government officials who are involved in making policy decisions about public health and safety. But it also involves speaking directly to the general public, not exaggerating the risk, not downplaying the risk, just having an honest conversation and emphasizing what they can do to prevent attacks. 
And that is going to involve using mass media to communicate with the public, even if people are dismissive now and there is a lot of complaining about the risk being extremely exaggerated. The risk is low, but the risk is not zero. And people have been killed and they have died horrible deaths, swarmed and stung over the entire body, stung in the face and in the eyes and in the mouth, essentially suffocated and stung to death by thousands of angry bees. Nobody deserves to die like that. So, yes, we should talk about it, and yes, we should warn people, and yes, we should try to prevent future deaths from Africanized honeybees, even if a lot of people are rolling their eyes about this now. And it is notable that even though we are only experiencing one or two confirmed deaths per year here in the United States, these bees are a much bigger problem all over Latin America, where they are much more entrenched and have been for many years. Over 1,000 people have been killed by Africanized honeybees in Latin America since this whole fiasco started. And in fact, that figure, 1,000 deaths, was first published in Scientific American back in 1993, so you know, over 30 years ago. And many more people have been killed since then, so the true figure is likely much higher now. And the problem hasn't disappeared or decreased in any way. Just a few months ago, a terrible story in Nicaragua, a public bus full of people fell off a road in the jungle and rolled down a ravine. Miraculously, nobody was killed by the initial crash, but... The bus had smashed into several hives filled with Africanized honeybees, and, of course, a massive attack occurred, and six people died, including an eight-year-old girl and her mother, and something like 12 or 15 or 20 people ended up being hospitalized, something like that. So, like I keep saying, these terrible tragedies do occur, and as citizens of this world, we should care about them. And it's notable that Africanized honeybees are continuing to expand their territory in the United States. They were found in Arizona and New Mexico in the early 1990s, shortly after the initial discovery in Texas, and then in Southern California, shortly after that. And now they're in some of the southern portions of Nevada and Utah, and also as far east as Florida and Georgia, which leads us to ask an important question is there anything we can do to stop the bees from spreading or at least slow them down? And I know what you're thinking, honey badgers. But as much fun as that would be, introducing yet another invasive species into the environment is probably not a great idea, especially an animal like the honey badger that has potential to really wreak havoc on the native ecosystem. Similar to the previous podcast about fire ants, there has been some discussion about essentially targeted biological warfare against the Africanized honeybees by finding a microbe or parasite that is specifically highly contagious and highly deadly against Africanized honeybees, but somehow leaves all of their forms of life unaffected. That would be nice, but nothing that safe and effective has been discovered yet. Various different human interventions have been proposed, and 
some attempted, but nothing has been particularly effective. The reality is we will probably just have to rely on Mother Nature to eventually stop the spread of the Africanized honeybees. Earlier we talked about how European honeybees are essentially the emergency preparedness experts of the insect world. They have their hive prepped. They have their food storage, and they have their plan for rationing, and they are able to survive winter conditions. Africanized honeybees, not so much. They generally do not survive well in cold climates. In South America, they do not overwinter south of the 34th parallel because it is too cold. That number will not be exactly equivalent in North America because there are differences in altitude and humidity and wind patterns and stuff like that that affects climate, but it gives us some idea. The state of Utah is an interesting example because the boundary has possibly already been established. From about 2008 to 2016, Africanized honeybees were discovered in almost every county in southern Utah, which is a lot of red rock desert and very warm, especially in the summer. Northern Utah, in contrast, is much more mountainous and obviously further north and is overall significantly colder. And there has been no evidence of any spread of Africanized honeybees any further north in Utah since 2016. So maybe we have an idea of where to draw the line for now. And that's good to know because people and animals north of that line will not be at risk of mass attacks. And also very crucial, the Africanized honeybees will not be able to invade and replace the colonies of European honeybees that currently live north of that line. And again, like we discussed before, those are the bees that are most important for honey production and plant pollination in the United States. So that's a big deal. And of course, the public health and safety of people and animals is also a big deal. So that completes the prolonged rambling portion of this podcast. Everyone has their talents. My talent is that I can take a three-minute story and turn it into a 30-minute story. That's my gift, and I'm sharing it with you today. But I do think it's an important story to share, and I hope that you found it at least somewhat interesting. And now that we have talked about bees, let's talk about bee stings. As mentioned earlier, female bees have stingers. Males do not because the stinger is essentially a modified ovipositor, which lays eggs. Honeybees have barbed stingers, so the stinger apparatus detaches and is retained in the skin after the bee stings and flies away. In fact, the entire distal segment of the bee's abdomen detaches, including a venom sac, a nerve ganglion, several small muscles, and a portion of the bee's digestive tract. And because of this, honeybees can only sting once, and they do die shortly after the sting and self-amputation event. So, Bad for the bee, but also bad for you because the stinger is still embedded in your arm and it is loaded with venom. Like most venoms in the insect world, bee venom is a complex mixture of several different compounds, some of which are pro-inflammatory, others are anti-inflammatory. It seems like there are a million different effects. 
The list includes phospholipase A, hyaluronidase, and histamine. Those chemicals are found in all bee and wasp venoms. The main toxic component in bee venom is melatonin, which interestingly has cytotoxic properties and has been investigated as a possible treatment in cancer, specifically targeting and destroying cancerous cells. Melatonin is not found in wasp venom, although wasp venom does contain many other different active ingredients. It is important to note that the sting of the Africanized honeybee is not any more toxic than the sting of the European honeybee. They are more dangerous to humans in the sense that they are much more aggressive in defending their hives and swarming in much larger numbers and over much larger distances. There is some evidence that Africanized honeybee swarms are 10 times the size of European honeybee swarms, and they will chase a human 400 to 500 meters. That's over a quarter of a mile for folks here in the U.S. So therein lies the danger. There is a much higher risk of a massive attack, but a single sting from an individual Africanized honeybee is no more toxic than a European honeybee. And as I alluded to earlier, deaths from massive attacks have so far been very rare in the United States. The most recent CDC data reports an average of 72 deaths per year in the country attributed to all bee and wasp stings combined. And a large percentage of those deaths are likely due to anaphylactic reactions rather than direct toxicity from the venom. So the data is not very specific. But all evidence we have thus far argues that deaths from massive envenomations by killer bees are relatively rare. Interestingly, 84% of those 72 deaths per year are males. The medical and public health communities attribute this to men being much more likely to be working outdoors. You know, a lot of the classic stories about deadly stings from bees and wasps are farmers and ranchers getting stung while working on their land or construction crews. People you might guess would be at high risk and mostly male. I'm sure there is also an element of idiot male behavior that increases the risk. Hey, dude, will you give me a dollar if I stick my head inside this hornet's nest? That kind of stuff. And another group that gets stung a lot, beekeepers, which kind of makes sense, but also kind of doesn't. Obviously, they do use protection, which is always good advice. But they are humans. They are not 100% perfect. Accidents happen. Carelessness happens. And so sometimes stings happen. And again, honeybees can only sting you once each, even Africanized honeybees. They just happen to bring 50,000 of their closest friends with them when they sting you. And a single sting releases a chemical that apparently acts as a stimulant and homing beacon that encourages all of the other bees to sting the same victim. And thus your bad day just keeps getting worse. Bumblebees have smooth stingers without barbs. And so they can sting more than once, but statistically speaking, they would rather not sting you at all. Wasps can also sting you more than once, and they probably will, if given the chance. We will talk about them on my next episode of this podcast. So when a human gets stung by a honeybee, what does it look like? 
the standard beasting event, so not talking about massive attacks right now, just the good old-fashioned traditional beasting, is divided into three different presentations. Local reactions, large local reactions, and systemic allergic reactions. Local reactions are far and away the most common, about 90% of bee stings. The victim will experience local pain and likely a raised wheel of redness and swelling between 1 to 5 centimeters in diameter. These appear within minutes and disappear within hours. In a large local reaction, you will see exaggerated redness and swelling 5 to 10 centimeters in diameter and can last for several days. Peak symptoms occur at about 48 hours. These account for about 10% of bee stings. Systemic allergic reactions are exactly what they sound like. The toxicity is due to an allergic reaction to the venom, not the direct action of the venom itself. And clinically, they are highly variable. Some patients will only experience a generalized urticarial rash, an itchy rash sometimes called hives. Other patients will experience severe anaphylaxis, often with profound hypotension and sometimes with swelling of their mouth and throat to the point of blocking their airway. These reactions are rare, between 0.3 and 3% of bee stings, but they are the most common cause of death. Anaphylaxis from bee stings is particularly infamous for being very severe and very difficult to treat. And it makes sense, right? When you have an allergic reaction to something that is injected under your skin, that is a continuous, prolonged exposure, as opposed to a food allergy where you might be able to vomit and empty your stomach, and then you swish some water in your mouth and spit it out and brush your teeth, stuff like that to remove the trigger. But for a bee sting, even when properly treated, the medications will eventually wear off and you might still have venom under your skin triggering anaphylaxis again. In terms of presentation of patients who are victims of massive attacks, case reports describe some patients experiencing nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, sometimes with dizziness and other patients with altered mental status, and some being found comatose, presumably due to profound hypotension from the effects of the massive envenomation. The most obvious physical exam finding will be the hundreds and hundreds of sting marks on the patient's body. In severe cases, labs will show evidence of hemolysis, rhabdomyolysis, and acute kidney injury, possibly cardiac dysrhythmias on EKG. In theory, these patients are suffering from direct toxicity of the venom, a massive load of the venom, but in practice, you can't immediately rule out severe allergic reaction either because there is so much overlap between the two in terms of clinical presentation. So you would be wise to consider treating empirically for anaphylaxis in these patients. Which brings us to the final segment of this episode, treatment of bee stings. And like a lot of things in medicine, management is based on the patient's presentation. But the first step in cases of honeybee stings is to remove the stinger. Now, the traditional teaching has been to remove the stinger by scraping it off with a credit card. People were told not to grasp the stinger with your fingers or tweezers because you would then squeeze more venom out of the venom sac and into the side of the sting. And that seems logical, but in 1996, a paper was published that argued against that logic. It was three B scientists, Vischer, Vetter, and Kamazine, and what they did is they allowed themselves to be stung by honeybees, 
and then removed the stingers at different times and with different methods and measured the diameter of the wheel produced on the skin at the sites of each sting. And they found that there was no statistically significant difference in the measured inflammatory response between pinching and pulling the stinger with their fingers versus scraping off with a credit card. In fact, the average diameter of the wheels was slightly larger for the scraped off sample than the pinched and pulled sample. But again, that difference was not statistically significant. And further, they noted that the tip of the stinger broke off and remained buried in the skin several times when the scraping method was used, but never for the pinch and pull method. So they concluded that the method of removal really didn't matter, but if anything, the evidence suggested that pinching and pulling is a slightly better approach. What did matter is the amount of time the stinger spent in the skin. And these guys being experts in bees explained it very nicely in their paper. Essentially, the retained stinger includes two lancets, which are barbed and are attached to a stylet, which is ultimately connected to some muscle and nerve tissue that is left behind when the honeybee flies away after the sting. And so the barbed lancets of the stinger under the control of the retained muscle and nerve tissue continue burrowing deeper into the skin even after separation from the honeybee. And furthermore, the venom sac has a piston and valve mechanism that continues actively injecting venom into the skin at the same time. And the researchers found that the sooner you get the stinger out, regardless of method used, the smaller the inflammatory wheel, the assumption being that this must be due to a smaller amount of venom being injected. And they concluded that if venom is being actively injected anyways, regardless of any external force squeezing the venom sac or not, then the best method for removal is simply the quickest one, which they argued is just pinching and pulling the stinger with your fingers rather than somebody fumbling around trying to find a credit card. And the research on this has produced some numbers. Ideally, you remove the stinger within two seconds to minimize the injection of venom, and appears most of the venom is injected within the first eight seconds, and is almost completely finished at about 30 seconds. So there you have it. Just get the stinger out as quick as you can, and since your fingers are always handy, Kind of a little dad joke there. That is probably the best method with the added benefit of less risk of the tip of the stinger breaking off and being retained in your skin, at least according to one admittedly very small study. So now that we have the stinger out, what are the next steps in treatment? For all stings, the standard quick wash with soap and water is recommended. Some sources suggest a solution of meat tenderizer and water applied to a cotton ball and then rubbed on the site of the sting for 20 minutes, the idea being an enzyme called papain will neutralize the venom somewhat. Other sources mention baking soda mixtures or aluminum deodorants. For most bee stings, which get better on their own within a few hours. That all seems like more trouble than it's worth, in my opinion, but you can certainly try it if you want. Beyond that, for local reactions, it is usually just NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, to reduce the pain and swelling. Some sources suggest applying a cold compress, which is fine. Overall, the human body has been healing these injuries just fine for thousands of years without needing any help from modern medicine. For 
large local reactions, which again are defined as redness and swelling larger than five centimeters in diameter, I think it is worth it to add a few treatments beyond the standard dosing of ibuprofen. These are bigger reactions and they last longer. And I generally treat them with a single dose of dexamethasone, which is an oral steroid. And then the patient can take oral antihistamines, such as cetirizine or diphenhydramine, and a mild topical steroid, such as hydrocortisone, to help reduce the itching and swelling. As an emergency physician, large local reactions are kind of annoying to me because they can look just like cellulitis. You have a puncture of the skin, followed by two or three days of spreading redness and swelling. That sounds a lot like cellulitis. And they can look kind of bad, especially on the face. But if there is no induration, hardening of the skin, or tenderness to palpation, it is likely not cellulitis and does not need an antibiotic. As a general rule, bee stings almost never require antibiotics or tetanus prophylaxis. The risks are a little different for some wasp stings, which we will talk about in a future episode. Now, what about managing bee stings in the wild, outdoors, away from civilization? You can probably guess, clean the wound with whatever you have. Maybe that's hand gel or an antiseptic wipe. And then ibuprofen or acetaminophen is just fine. And maybe a dose of cetirizine or diphenhydramine if you have it. The big question is when does a bee sting victim need to go to the hospital? There are two major scenarios. Number one, a mass envenomation event, meaning the patient has been stung many times. And number two, any evidence of a severe allergic reaction. For scenario number one, the question is how many stings is too many? Some sources say you should go to the hospital if you have been stung more than 15 or 20 or 25 times. But increasingly, I see the number 50, 50, as the threshold for an adult or adult-sized teenager. For children, the rule of thumb is one sting per one kilogram of weight, or about five stings for every 10 pounds. These numbers estimate the toxic dose of bee venom. In case you are wondering the estimated lethal dose, one paper that I read calculated about 1,300 stings for a 70-kilogram adult. Obviously, the risk of death depends on the person and the situation and access to health care, but that gives you a ballpark figure to keep in mind. Scenario number two is the scariest. As we discussed, a severe allergic reaction might be limited to a bad rash with a lot of itching, but the risk of progression to anaphylaxis is real, and these patients need to go to the hospital urgently. I will also add that any patient who has a history of anaphylaxis to a bee sting, even if they are currently well-appearing, also needs to go to the hospital ASAP. You likely already know the treatment for anaphylaxis, intramuscular epinephrine, if you're out in the wilderness and you have access to an EpiPen and somebody needs it, please use it. And then get that person to a hospital immediately. We have already touched on this, but bee stings are notorious for rebound anaphylaxis and biphasic reactions. These are patients at much higher risk for needing multiple doses of epinephrine. And maybe some albuterol and IV fluids and in severe cases, vasopressors. In addition, all patients who present to the hospital with any kind of severe allergic reaction will receive some combination of steroids and antihistamines by mouth or through an IV. 
As I mentioned earlier, these two scenarios can be difficult to tell apart because anaphylaxis and massive venom toxicity have so many similar symptoms, and they can overlap. You can absolutely have a massive attack that results in anaphylaxis. So for any patient suspected of either scenario, careful evaluation and close monitoring of the ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation, is absolutely necessary. In a hospital setting, management of those ABCs could include almost anything that you might do for any other critically ill patient, intubation and ventilation of the airway, vascular access and fluid resuscitation, vasopressors for severe hypotension, blood transfusions for severe hemolysis, etc., and so forth. And please don't hesitate to give intramuscular epinephrine to any patient with any suspicion of anaphylaxis. With appropriate treatment, most patients survive and have an excellent prognosis after recovery. And of course, the vast majority of humans who are stung by bees don't require much treatment at all. The overall risk to the average person is very low, but it is not zero. And even with recent advances in medicine and slowly increasing access to healthcare across the globe, there have still been thousands of deaths due to bee stings worldwide in the past few decades. So definitely a topic worth knowing about, and now you do. And with that, I will conclude this long, rambling sermon about bees and killer bees and bee stings. Until next time, this is Mac Gunderson encouraging you to never go outdoors ever again. Just kidding, but seriously, be safe out there. And thanks for joining us on this episode of the AWLS Podcast. Thank you.